What's stopping you from becoming a Catholic? Why can't women become priests? 1-833-288-EWTN. I don't understand why I have to earn salvation. 1-833-288-3986. Why do I need to confess my sins to a priest? What's stopping you? This is Call to Communion with Dr. David Anders on the EWTN Global Catholic Radio Network. Hey everybody, welcome again to Call to Communion on this Ash Wednesday. It is the program for our non-Catholic brothers and sisters. Maybe you yourself are not a Catholic, but you're saying, what is the deal about ashes? Well, we can explain that to you or any question that you choose. Here is our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. If you're listening to us today in uh, Tasmania, you'll want to uh, dial 1 and then 205 271 2985. And of course, you can always send us an email, the address for that, ctc at ewtn.com. Charles Beery is our producer. Matt Kabinsky is our phone screener. Rich Jesse handles social media for us. If you want to ask a question via YouTube or Facebook, we're streaming on both platforms right now. Just put your question in the comments box. Rich will say, aha, and he will then send it to us here in Studio One. Get that question answered on today's program, hopefully. The uh, phone number again, 833-288-EWTN. I'm Tom Price along with Dr. David Anders. Tom, how are you? Very well. How is your Lent going so far, or is it too soon to tell? Uh, too soon to tell. <laughs> too soon to tell. We're just, you know, barely scratching the surface of Lent. So why do we as Catholics, or, and, and actually it's permissible for non-Catholics to, to get ashes on, a, on an Ash Wednesday. Why do we do that? To remind ourselves that we're going to die. We are. Mm-hmm. That's the long and the short from, of it. From dust you come, and to dust you shall return. There you go. Thanks for answering that. Here's an email from Teresa. What would happen if a Catholic bishop attempted to ordain a woman to the Catholic priesthood? It would be like Trying, well, no, I'm not using that comparison. <laughs> <laughs> I started to get myself in trouble. Live radio, buddy. Come on now. All right. So, so, all right. Let me switch the context. It okay. would be like the same thing that would happen if a Catholic priest attempted to consecrate, say, broccoli into the body and blood of Christ. Okay. It would not be consecrated. It would just stay broccoli, right? Sure. Um, and uh, you've got to have valid matter for ordination. And ordination can only validly be applied to men. And so literally nothing would happen, except people would become confused. Ah, very. Teresa, thanks for your email. Here's one now from Derek, who says, You often say that the first generation of Protestant reformers considered themselves to be Catholic. If this is so, why did not later Protestants think this way? And what happened to change all that? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So, actually, later Protestants did think that way, yeah, and they continued to do so for quite some time. And if you go to confessional Protestant churches today, um, like your Lutherans, your Presbyterians, your Anglicans, Uh they still confess belief in the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. They say the the Nicene Creed, and and the, the better formed among them will understand that their own doctrinal tradition is claiming continuity with that one holy Catholic and apostolic faith, right? So it, it, it wasn't a belief that ever vanished from Protestantism entirely, but something did change. And 
I personally mark it in the 18th century. So uh, early in the Protestant Reformation was the expectation that all Protestants would necessarily get on board. They would get on the same page doctrinally. Uh, Ulrich Zwingli published a book in the early 1520s called On the Clarity and Certainty of the Word of God. And it was putting forth the idea that the Scripture should be the Church's rule of faith, not the Pope and the bishops and tradition. Mm -hmm. And Zwingli actually gave as one of the arguments for Scripture as the rule of faith that Catholics were all over the place theologically and couldn't agree with one another. And that if they if they just agreed on the Bible, that it would put an end to all contention. And he had in mind the different schools of scholastic theology. Uh-huh. You know, and they they did have differences with each other. Mm. And uh, and if they would just you know get past all their navel gazing you know uh, angels on the head of a pen counting pedantic nonsense and just concentrate on the Bible alone, they'd all be on the same page. Um, Calvin. Similarly, he, he, he was a little bit more articulate than Zwingli. He didn't think that the Bible just hung out to dry would do that. He thought that the Bible, as proclaimed by an ordained Reformed ministry that was committed to the authority of the Word of God, who had a proper education and so forth, that that proclaimed Word of the Gospel would bring total uniformity and, and peace and all the rest of it. Hmm. Um, Luther, similarly, thought to Calvin, thought that the proclaimed Word of God would, would do that. And so they, uh, they did think that they, that they could have a basis for church unity. And what happened is it just never materialized. The, the Protestant myth, the Protestant dream of unanimity in the faith by rallying around the Bible never materialized. And with each passing generation, the divisions within Protestantism grew greater and greater and greater. Until finally, uh, in the 18th century, um, the evangelical movement was born— and uh, I, again, I, I date this to George Whitfield. Maybe some other people had the same idea, but Whitfield's the first person I know of who teaches explicitly, mm-hmm. you know, the differences between Protestant groups about ecclesiology or sacramental theology. They don't really matter. What matters is the new birth, the experience of conversion, the evangelical experience. That's really the point of unity among real Christians, and all the rest of it is just kind of, you know, flavors of ice cream. And so the ideology of denominationalism was born. We've always had denominations, but we didn't have an explicit doctrine, an explicit ideology of denominationalism, meaning all this division is fundamentally okay, we don't have to agree, right? So that, I think that's, that was the turning point in the mentality was the 18th century around the First Great Awakening. Okay, appreciate that. Here's a quick one from Gary in uh, Northfield, Minnesota. What are the similarities and differences between a bishop and a cardinal? Well, all cardinals are bishops. Yes. Well, no, I take that back. They're not. <laughs> as soon as I say that, they're not. Okay. Yeah. Most cardinals are bishops. Okay. All okay. right. Um, and most bishops are not cardinals. So a cardinal, historically, the word cardinal referred to bishops who were absent from their sees, absent from their dioceses, mm-hmm. uh, maybe because they were you know, their diocese was under persecution or something, and they would flee to Rome and take refuge with the pope. And so the Pope had this group of, of um, sort of um, extern bishops all hanging around with nothing to do because they were alienated from their seats. So he made them his collaborators and advisors and counselors and things like that. And the word cardinal literally comes from the word that means hinge because they were a point of contact between the Diocese of Rome and these other dioceses from which they were exiled. Now, that eventually change, and I'll get to that on the other side of the break. All right, so we will continue that question. We'll also get to Ann, a first-time caller from Bay City, Michigan, Nick in Detroit, and a couple lines open for you as well at 833-288-EWTN for a call to communion. 
It's called a communion on this Wednesday afternoon. Not just any Wednesday afternoon. This is Ash Wednesday here on EWTN. Our phone number, 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. And uh, if you're ready now, let's uh, go to the phones. We'll talk with Ann, a first-time caller in Bay City, listening on the great Ave Maria radio. Hello, Ann. What's on your mind today? Yes, I'd like to get uh, Father Andrew's uh, thoughts on this uh, the Pope blessing these gay couples. Um, isn't that sending uh, uh, um, the wrong message to to people that, that it's okay to be gay? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Well, first of all, I just want to clarify, I am a father, but only to my five children. Yes. All right? I'm not an ordained priest. I'm okay. just a layman with a theology degree. Very good. Um, and uh, is it sending the wrong message for the for the Pope to bless gay couples. Well, first of all, I, again, I should clarify that the Pope's recent remarks on this issue have been widely misinterpreted and taken out of context. And the Pope did not just say, without qualification, a blanket, let's go bless gay couples. What, what he, more precisely what he said was, if people who are in a gay relationship were to approach a priest for a blessing, could a priest, in fact, bless them? Now, the practice of the church has historically been to bless everybody, including gay couples, on all kinds of occasions without raising the issue of their sexuality. I'll give you an example. If you stay to the end of Mass and don't actually cut out after the communion, everyone in the congregation gets blessed. Yeah. The, 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 the priest does not stop and, and ask, you know, okay, who here is in the state of mortal sin? Who's here in the state of grace? Who's validly married? Who's not validly married? He, he just, everybody here, bless. <laughs> just a general blessing for everybody there. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, a week or two ago, we had the Feast of St. Blaise. Everybody can come up in the church and, uh, and get blessed in the Feast of St. Blaise. And as, a, and as a priest from a, a, a diocese in America told me recently, you know, after all, we're just blessing them from the neck up. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the Feast of St. Blaise. Yeah. You know? Again, you're not asking about everybody's marital life when you do that. Um, and so what the Pope says is if somebody asks for a blessing, right off the bat, that indicates that that individual has a desire for a closer union with God. And we know that that union with God requires growth and holiness, including sexual purity and fidelity and all of that sort of stuff, uh, and the Catholic understanding of marriage and human sexuality and children. And uh, uh, but you still have to get from A to B. If you're right. not living that way, you're going to need God's grace to get that way. And so it's not inappropriate for a priest to pray for someone whose life is disordered, in the hopes that their life will become well ordered. And if a priest were to respond to such a request, the Pope goes on to say it's very important that he act in a way that does not convey the message that you think might be conveyed that nothing he does should be construed as condoning what is an intrinsically immoral lifestyle. All right, so all that is by way of preface. Now, at, at the end, is it possible that the, cope, the Pope's remarks will be taken without that qualification, without that nuance, and put to a use that the Pope did not intend or is not in accord with the mind of the Church or that might lead to a bad moral outcome? Of course. Of course. You know, people will always bend things to, you know, to their own purposes. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so could, sure. might the Pope's statements be misused in that way? Sure. 
Okay. And thanks so much for your call. That opens up a line for you right now. You know, we never did finish the question about uh, cardinals. Just coming right back to that. Uh, We have a line open for you right now at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Yeah, that was my my bad there for going to her uh, rather than coming back, circling back on that question from Gary in Northfield, Minnesota. If you're just joining us, here's that question. What are the similarities and differences between a bishop and a cardinal. Yeah, so I started before the break, I said, you know, not all bishops are cardinals, and most cardinals are bishops, although they're not all cardinals. Right. And the office of the cardinal began when bishops began being driven from their sees, their their home diocese, maybe because of persecution or something, and they would take refuge in Rome. And so you have all these bishops without, you know, without the care of their diocese, and they're hanging about Rome, and the Pope said, well, let's put these guys to work, let's find something for them to do, so they would become collaborators with the Pope and his advisors and things like that. And yeah, then yeah. the College of Cardinals you know, eventually became the the uh, the institution that had, to which was given the responsibility of electing the new, the new Pope if an, if an old Pope died or resigned mm-hmm. or something like mm-hmm. that. Now, what has happened over the years is that, you know, the, most of the voting cardinals are, in fact, bishops, but the Pope can make someone a cardinal, could make someone who's not a bishop a cardinal as a kind of kind of honorific. All right. So uh, we often, we, back in the day, we used to talk about John Henry Cardinal Newman, right? <laughs> um, who is uh, now he's now he's Saint John Henry Newman, but yes. he used to always be John Henry Cardinal Newman. Newman was not a bishop; he was a he was a, a priest and a theologian who during his lifetime received almost nothing but opprobrium and opposition from everybody in the hierarchy and everybody in the church. And at the very end of his life, Leo XIII made him a cardinal, and and he wasn't sure he wanted to accept. He asked the Pope, he said, um, if I accept the cardinalate, do I have to move to Rome or can I stay in England? And they made it, usually, up until that time, they'd always move to Rome. And he said, well, we'll let you stay in England. And, and, and Newman said, okay, and he accepted it because... He said it was the first public recognition he'd ever had from anybody in the hierarchy that anything he'd ever written was of any value. Wow. And now, of course, he's, he's, like, he's like almost regarded as a doctor of the church. Yeah. Um, but, uh, but they made him a cardinal. It's kind of honorific. Uh, uh, Avery Dulles, American theologian Avery Dulles, was made a cardinal by John Paul II. Again, as a kind of honorific. Um, uh, Henri de Lubac was made a cardinal. He was a French theologian. So you do have some cardinals that are not bishops, um, and they typically are— you know, prominent theologians who have done some service to the church, and the, this is a kind of honorific recognizing their significance. But most of them are are, are bishops who have this job of um, of, uh, of helping to elect the next pope. Gary, thanks again uh, for your email. Do appreciate that. Call to communion here on EWTN. Two lines open at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. New from EWTN Publishing, New Scientific Evidence for the Existence of God by Jose Carlos Gonzalez Hurtado. This is the book you need to challenge atheists and agnostics to defend their ideologies logically and rationally and to fortify your own beliefs. In this book, you'll find empirical evidence for theism in a way that you can easily understand, and it explains how atheism twists reality to justify its view by, quote, selective skepticism. Check out this great book, New Scientific Evidence for the Existence of God, by Jose Carlos Gonzalez Hurtado. It's available right now at EWTN RC. Buy Catholic, shop Catholic, EWTNRC.com. All right, back to the phones now. Here is Nick in Detroit. 
watching us on YouTube this afternoon. A blessed lunch to you, Nick. What's on your mind today, sir? Same to you guys. Um, so sometimes in conversation with my Protestant friends, you know, they'll jump to the Bible right away, and then they'll use St. Augustine for some quotes, and then I say St. Augustine says that he wouldn't even believe in the Scriptures if it were not for the authority of the Catholic Church, right? So um, were the early Church Fathers Catholic in the same sense the way you and I are today, or are they kind of trying to just hijack the word Catholic, and they'll say it's a small-c Catholic, and they were all Catholic, so... Um, is it kind of that they're just trying to hijack that word in a sense? Yeah, I really appreciate the question. So th- the way the word Catholic was used, was used in antiquity and the way that Roman Catholics use it today, of course it does mean universal, but it means, don't, don't forget that the, that the mar- marks of the Church are one, one holy Catholic and apostolic. Mm-hmm. So th- the thing that's universal isn't just some sort of vague Christian sentiment. The thing that's universal is the unity and the apostolic succession. So wherever you go throughout the world, you will find one church that's united in faith and practice and communion with the bishops and communion with the Bishop of Rome. So there's a, there's a very visible unity there that is universally available. Mm-hmm. And when modern Protestants typically use the word Catholic to refer to themselves, they mean a kind of vague Christian sentiment. They don't mean that level of uniformity. They'll right. say, well, you know, we're Catholic in the sense that all true believers around the world belong to the Catholic Church. Okay, well, what's a true believer? Well, I guess it's guys that believe like me. <laughs> you know, so yeah. it, they're not using the word in the same sense. Okay, Nick, thanks so much uh, for your call today. Call to communion here on EWTN. One line open at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Caitlin is listening in Pennsylvania on the EWTN app. Hello, Caitlin. A blessed Lent to you. What's on your mind today? Hi. Um, I just Hi, Dr. David Andrews. Um, I My question was, is it possible to defeat all of your sins and not go to confession anymore? Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. Yes, it is theoretically possible. And there are a handful of saints that have, in fact, lived that way. And I'm thinking sort of most conspicuously of St. Mary of Egypt, who was a hermit who, you know, lived in isolation for a very long time, and Mm -hmm. the Church venerates her as a person of exceeding holiness, and so you you do have in the tradition people who have lived, um, you know, a few steps removed from the regular practice of the sacramental life of the Church, because, Uh you know, they lived maybe a hermetical existence, or so maybe they were sickbed, that sort of thing. So, yeah, that's, of course, possible. Now, though what the canon law says is that we're bound by law to confess our known mortal sins once a year in kind and number. And so the question comes up, well, what if you don't have any mortal sins? Well, then you would not be bound by law to go to confession if you didn't have any conscious mortal sins. But as a practical matter, when you read the lives of the saints, um, they don't stay away from confession because they're not conscious of grave sin. Because they, they recognize that the confessional has such great benefits and they're always trying to press it further up and further in and get closer in their relationship with God. And so they know that examination of conscience and confession of faults and taking spiritual counsel, these are all spiritual disciplines that are integral to the work of humility, which, Teresa of Avila says, has to always be at work like a busy bee. And if you don't have humility <laughs> going on, then you've, lo- you've lost everything. Yeah. So it's it wouldn't be a good idea to set out with the goal of, I'm going to never go to confession by, you know, by habitually avoiding mortal sin. Uh, that wouldn't be a, that wouldn't be a, 
just set out for the goal of holiness and use the opposite means that Christ has given us. There you go. Caitlin, is that helpful for you? Oh, yes, very much. Thank you. You're most welcome. Call to communion here on EWTN. Let's go from Caitlin to Kathleen, a first-time caller in St. Louis, listening on the Great Covenant Network. Hello, Kathleen. What's on your mind today? Hi, thank you for taking my call. Um, I just had an experience uh, on the Feast of St. Blaise that I've never experienced before, and it was that there was a priest who gave the blessing of the throats at the end of Mass, but there were also two lay people, a lay man and a lay woman, who the priest was directing people to, I guess, to keep things moving quickly. And I had never experienced that before, and I was just wondering if that was something new, or yeah, you don't need thanks. to be an ordained minister for that. Yeah, I appreciate the question very much. Thank you. So, um, blessing is tied to jurisdiction, that you have been given a charge in ministry, that you have, you know, the care of souls under you somehow, uh-huh. and so you're in a position to speak on behalf of the Church and to grant that blessing. So there is in the Church a, a book of blessings, that is the right of blessings that are given. The vast majority of them are reserved for clergy. There are a few exceptions. So for example, the book of blessings has a blessing that parents can pray for their children. They have jurisdiction over their kids. And my understanding is that according to the law of the Church, that on the Feast of St. Blaise, a minister can be a lay minister can be given jurisdiction really? to perform that blessing. Now you can in lawyer people type. You, y'all call me mm. up, tell me if I'm wrong, but I, I, that's my understanding. Okay. But it would be tied to it would be tied to the jurisdiction that would ultimately be connected to the priest and the bishop. So, for example, I um, I couldn't skip mass that day. You know, go to Walmart, buy myself a couple of candles, <laughs> and then uh, you know there was used to be this street preacher preacher outside the Walmart near my home, and uh-huh. he he got a PA system, and stood there, you know, for hours at a time on wow. the street corner, preaching in a very loud voice, amplified voice to all the cars that had to stop at the stop sign right in front of him, you know, <sighs> and uh, I couldn't go set up shop next to him and be like. Throat blessings here. Come get your throat <laughs> blessing. I don't have a jurisdiction. I don't have a mission from the church right. to do that. But in right. the context of the liturgy, someone can be delegated. There you go, Kathleen. Thanks so much for your call from St. Louis. Call to communion here on EWTN on this Ash Wednesday. If you have a question for Dr. David Anders, we're here for you at 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Pierre is watching us on YouTube this afternoon. Pierre says, uh, Dear Dr. Anders, can you explain contemplative prayer? And can you provide an example? Thanks for your answers, and may the Lord keep blessing you and all that you do. Again, that's Pierre on YouTube. Yeah, thanks. I appreciate the question. So uh, the simplest way to describe contemplative prayer is that contemplative prayer is the prayer that enables you to grasp experientially the truths that you confess doctrinally. Mm. So let me reframe that. Um, You know, we say that Christ became incarnate for the sake of our redemption, that he died and defeated sin, hell, death, and the devil, and he rose again in triumph over those things, and that we're incorporated into him by baptism, and that we can also live an overcoming life and be reborn in Jesus and have the mind of Christ and grow in virtue and charity. I can say all of that and be a real jerk, (laughs) right? And the contemplative path is the path where through diligent self-examination and ascesis, you know, self-abnegation, um, prayer, petition, um, sacramental life, confession, examination of conscience, rigorous uh, ex- imitation of Jesus, 
uh, you know, works of mercy and the like, then those truths that are proclaimed to us in the gospel about Jesus' death and resurrection begin to be manifested in my life. And okay. so that my, my mentality is changed. I begin to see the world in a new way, a supernaturally infused way that we call the contemplative life. Okay. Pierre, thanks for watching us on YouTube this afternoon. In a moment, Anthony from Long Branch, New Jersey. Also, Philip, a first-time caller from Anderson, Indiana. Jerry in North Carolina, one line, maybe two lines open for you at 833-288-EWTN for Call to Communion on this Ash Wednesday. Stay with us. It's called to Communion on this Ash Wednesday here on EWTN. Our phone number 833-288-EWTN. That's 833-288-3986. Congratulations going out to two more wonderful members of the EWTN radio family. His Mercy Radio. That's at 107.9 FM in Grants Pass, Oregon, celebrating nine years with us this week. And how about this? Sacred Heart Radio, 100.7 in Plainview, Texas, by golly, they're celebrating 20 years with EWTN. So congratulations to Connie Murphy at KJCR in Grants Pass and Willie Hernandez at KOLF in Plainview from your friends here at EWTN Radio. All right, back to the phones now. Here is Anthony, a first-time caller in Long Branch, New Jersey, listening on the great domestic church media. Hey there, Anthony, a blessed Lent to you. What's on your mind today, sir? Hi, thank you for taking my call. So uh, I just had a question. My, I have a Protestant friend, um, and I think he's getting a bit confused on some of the things like um, between like Scripture and like the Catholic tradition in our faith. Um, and some examples I would pose are like the the Rosary um, of how you know that's developed over the years in our faith. Um, he's hung up on the idea of purgatory because he doesn't feel that's seen in Scripture, um, and just and uh, praying to Mary and saints where. I know we don't pray to them, but we pray through them. Um, but he's having a little bit of a rough time with those things. I was wondering if you could give me um, some answers that maybe I could pose to him. Yeah, absolutely. I really appreciate the question. So first of all, I need to draw some distinctions. And there is a big difference between praying the rosary on the one hand and belief in purgatory and the intercessory role of Mary and the saints on the other. Because purgatory and the role of Mary and the saints, those are dogmas of the faith that all Catholics are bound to believe. Uh, the, the rosary is a practice, it's a devotional practice that's not obligatory for the faithful. And, uh, and so, you know, while I can offer reasons why it might be a good idea, um, you know, I'm, it's not something that I'm going to just, it's not the hill I'm going to die on when I talk to a Protestant. And when I talk to converts, they're like, well, I'm not big into the rosary. I'm like, well, that's okay. You, you don't have to be big into the rosary. There's no dogma that says you must pray the rosary. Um, but, uh, but as far as the particular traditions that you that you've mentioned I can I'm going to offer a defense of those but before I do I want to push back on your Protestant friend in this way he's saying purgatory prayer to the saints I don't see these in the Bible okay that question comes from his conviction that for something to be believed for something to be practiced in the Christian faith that it must be founded on the express words of the Bible that's a Protestant doctrine. It's called the doctrine of sola scriptura, or the doctrine of the Bible alone. You can't believe something, can't do something, unless you can find it in the Bible. Now, what I want to suggest to you, Anthony, and you can tell your Protestant friend this, <clears throat> is the doctrine of sola scriptura is nowhere mentioned in the Bible. The Bible does not say that. The Bible talks about the Bible. Talk about, talks about it. One book of the Bible will talk about another book of the Bible. 
and the Bible will treat other biblical texts within it as authoritative, that's not an issue. But the Bible nowhere says, here is a list of biblical books, Genesis to Revelation, and with reference to this collection of books and this collection of books alone, may you settle matters of doctrinal controversy. That is not a biblical teaching. That is a teaching that is invented by the Protestant tradition, Martin Luther in particular, mm-hmm. and then imposed on their adherents. And so his question involves a kind of performative contradiction. Do you see what I'm saying? Like he's yeah. he is he is performatively contradicting himself. He's insisting that Catholics defend their teachings from the Bible when that very insistence itself violates the teaching of the Bible. So before I go on, Anthony, tell me if that makes sense to you. No, that does make sense. I see. Okay. Okay. And and when Jesus made provision for handing on the Christian faith, which he did, explicit provision, yes. he never said to the disciples, you know, go into all nations and hand them the Bible. When you have a question to settle, go to the Bible. He never said that. Instead, what Christ said was to the eleven, go into all nations, make disciples, and teach them everything I've commanded you, and I will be with you. And, of course, the reference to his commands— was a reference to what was an exclusively oral tradition, mm-hmm. which is why the Apostle Paul can say, the tradition that I received from the Lord I hand on to you. When Christ made provision for handing on the faith, it was to his oral tradition and to the teaching authority of the apostles and their successors to which he made reference. So the principle of tradition, the teaching of Christ handed down through the centuries, is explicitly the way Christ wants us to settle matters of Christian belief and practice. Not the Bible alone, rather sacred tradition. The Bible itself is a product of Catholic tradition. So he's never given this any thought, I guarantee your Protestant friend. He's got 27 books in his New Testament. Where does he think those books came from? Well, you know, the apostles wrote some of them. Okay, great. How does he know that? Matthew is anonymous. Mark is anonymous. Luke is anonymous. John is anonymous. Where does he think the authorship comes from? Like, how do we know that these books are assigned to apostles? Tradition. And so on with every other book of the New Testament. Every other book of the New Testament. And then how does he form the judgment that they're inspired books as opposed to just edifying books? Well, you know, nowhere does Matthew say, hey, guys, I'm an inspired book. The doctrine that Matthew is an inspired text is a doctrine that comes to us from tradition. How about these 27 books put together as a collection Again, that's something that was derived from Catholic tradition. The the books themselves don't tell you to do that. And so he doesn't even have a Bible if he throws out Catholic tradition. Tradition is the authority that defines even the contents of the Bible and and methods of properly interpreting it. Now, having said all of that, and basically said I fooey on Sola Scriptura— I'm now going to give you some biblical arguments for the practice that he rejects. Okay. Okay. So I wouldn't, I don't have to, because it's enough that tradition teaches them, but there are biblical arguments for them. With respect to purgatory, what's at issue in purgatory is both the the intermediate state of the soul mm-hmm. before heaven or hell, and the opportunity of the soul to do penance in reparation for its sins and to purify itself. All three of these things are taught in the Bible. So the idea that you have to have purity in order to see God is explicitly the teaching of Jesus, Matthew, Sermon on the Mount, when he says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Mm -hmm. Psalm Psalm 24, 22, one of the two, says, Who can ascend the Lord's mountain or stand on his holy hill? Only he who has clean hands and a pure heart. All right. 
the idea that that penance is necessary to make satisfaction for sins, even sins that are already forgiven. We find that in 2 Samuel 12 and 2 Samuel 24, occasions when David sinned, he was rebuked by a prophet, he repents, and God imposes a penance. So he's forgiven by God, but God still imposes a penance. So doing penance is a biblical teaching. Um, the idea that the souls have a kind of intermediate existence but between heaven and hell, we can find, your, your Protestant friend doesn't like this, but it's in the book of Maccabees, uh, 2 Maccabees chapter 15. Um, um, no, no, 2 Maccabees 12. I'm confused. I forgot. It's 12 or 15. Cause that's, <laughs> the other one is about the saints, and I'm okay. trying to remember, um, where we learn that the people of God offered prayers on behalf of dead Judeans who had died in questionably moral circumstances and sacrifices. They offered prayers and sacrifices for them. That was 12. 15 is where we get into the business with the saints, which I'll get to in a moment. Okay. Also, St. Paul, in his correspondence with, Tim, with Timothy, prays for the soul of his dead friend Onesiphorus. So again, presupposing that there is some state in the afterlife in which one can benefit from the prayers of the faithful. So you take all of those elements and put them together, you have a coherent doctrine of purgatory. Um, in the same way that, you know, the Bible never says the word Trinity, but you can kind of piece the doctrine of Trinity t- together from what it says about the unity of God mm-hmm. and, the, mm-hmm. and the divinity of the Son and this kind of thing, right? So we have a doctrine of purgatory there. Uh, when it comes to the prayers of uh, Mary and the saints— um, now I'm going back to Second Maccabees 15. Sorry, I got my chapters confused there for a second. Um, where uh, explicitly we see the the souls of the faithful dead interceding on behalf of the people of God. Uh, we find it in the book of Tobit, chapter 12. We also find it in the book of Revelation, chapter 5, and Revelation, chapter 8, where the saints in heaven are said to offer our prayers to God as incense for the throne. Um, way back in the Old Testament, in Second Kings, chapter 13, we find the relics of the saints— being effective for uh, miracles in the lives of the faithful. Mm-hmm. And so the idea is that just like people on earth can pray for one another, the dead, the church triumph, triumphant, can also pray on behalf of the faithful. God says to the companions of Job, uh, you guys don't pray, I'm not going to listen to y'all, but ask my servant Job to pray, I'll listen to him on your behalf. James chapter 5 says the prayer of a righteous man is very effective and the saints are righteous. Mm-hmm. So again, as a very coherent idea of an afterlife where the saints offer our prayers to God efficaciously, either directly or through the veneration of their relics. All that is scriptural teaching. So to suggest that it's somehow unbiblical is just to close your eyes to the facts because Protestant tradition has told you to do so. There you go. Anthony, we hope that's helpful for you. Uh, Dr. Andrews laid out a lot of information for you there. You can check out the podcast. Charles will have that posted for you in a couple of hours. Just go to EWTN.com, click on radio, then click on the words Podcast Central. When you scroll down, you'll see, because we have these in alphabetical order, you'll see Call to Communion on, like, I think the third tier there. Do check that out if you have more questions. Anthony, thanks so much for your call today. Call to Communion here on EWTN. Let's go to uh, Philip now, a first-time caller in Anderson, Indiana, listening on the great Catholic Radio Indy. Uh, Philip, a blessed Lent to you, sir. What's on your mind today? Uh, Thank you very much for taking my call, and uh, uh, God bless you both. Uh, you. You're so wonderful. You made such a change in my life. Thank and uh, Doctor David Andrews uh, just is totally amazing. And uh, thank God, uh, I realize he is a big blessing in my life, and I'm so thankful for that because I, I am now that. on my way to to uh, 
becoming a member of the Catholic Church, and and I, and I got started a little late. I'm 77, but but none, nonetheless, uh, uh, thanks to EWTN and your programs, and uh, it's just it's just been awesome. They've opened my eyes up to so much. And uh, oh, now my question is, oh, I'm just getting started, but am I qualified? to go to a Catholic priest for confession. Yeah, thank you. So you, you said you're on your way into the Church. Have, you're enrolled in RCIA? Just beginning. Just yeah. beginning. Okay, yeah. So to you, you, a, a catechumen or a candidate is a Catholic in an extended sense. They are, they are in an order in the Church, and um, and in fact, it is not just possible, but it's mandatory that you will you will go to confession before you're allowed to be well, unless you're unbaptized. Are you unbaptized? No. Okay. No. So if you're baptized, you will have to go to confession before you can be confirmed and receive uh, your first holy communion. Now, your RCAO program will prepare you for that and will make the sacrament available to you before Easter. And, and so my counsel would be that you, you stick with the plan of the RCA class, go, you know, go through the right of election and the scrutinies and all the rest of it. That mm-hmm. They're there for that kind of examination of conscience and preparation to make a good first confession. If you went, it would be valid. I mean, if you announced yourself as a catechumen or a candidate, you're on your way into becoming Catholic. Now, a priest can't hear the confession of a Protestant who is outside the Church and has no intention of entering— unless that person's in danger of death and has Catholic faith in the sacraments. Um, in your case, you know, you, you, it would be valid because you have the intention of becoming Catholic and you are enrolled as a, as, a, as a candidate. But my counsel would be to just do it along with your RCA class. Who will make that opportunity available to you? Philip, uh, thanks for your call and thanks for your kind words about the program. We really do appreciate that. Call to communion here on EWTN this Friday night. Be sure to join us for EWTN News in Depth. That's coming up Friday night, 8 p.m. Eastern on EWTN Radio and Television. This week, the Catholic Church steps up to help Maui residents some six months after that deadly wildfire. Also, Jordan Peterson discusses his wife's miraculous healing, and Young Adult Ministry helps Catholics in counter their faith. Sounds like a great program to me. EWTN News In-Depth, Friday night, 8 p.m. Eastern, only on EWTN Radio and Television. Back to the phones now. Here's Jerry in North Carolina listening on Sirius XM, Channel 130. Hey there, Jerry. A blessed Lent to you. What's on your mind today, sir? Thank you. Second time caller. I I rang you all up last Lent. Um, I'm an Anglican, uh, and as you would expect, on Ash Wednesday, we have the imposition of ashes. Um, given the gospel reading, we kind of, I always struggle with whether or not to wipe my ashes off my forehead, wash my face, and smile, and not let those know I'm fasting. Um, the sackcloth and ashes reference as well. This uh, year, our bishop actually used the imposition of oil, and uh, the kind of the, the benefits for me of that is I don't have to to wipe my forehead. And the beautiful thing is when I'm driving down the road, I can't see my face in a mirror. I, I can smell the scent from the oil, and it reminds me of, of the day. So I would love to know your opinion on the subject, and uh, thanks for taking my call. Yeah, thank you. I appreciate the question. Well, as you know, I'm Catholic. We Catholics use ashes. The ashes are there to remind us of our mortality, 
from dust you come and to dust you shall return. And so the symbolism of the ash is very specific. And so the use of oil to a Catholic would not indicate that. When that, you know, I mean, I guess you could say, you know, you're an oily mess and to an oily mess you will return. But, <laughs> but I mean, like, the, the, it seems to me that the substance has some significance in the Catholic tradition. Something else is indicated by oil, anointing as a scriptural practice is typically in a kind of investiture for some sort of sacred office. And, and even within the Anglican tradition, you have, got, you have got confirmation in which oil is used with that intent. And so it uh, puzzles me a little bit. Now, I have read about Anglican churches that, that have given up the use of ashes because they consider it to be unbiblical, and anointing is a common biblical motif, and so they've, they've gone for that instead. I don't know what the rationale was of your particular bishop. Now, you know, your own thoughts on the matter about the sort of the scrupling over whether you're doing this to be seen by men, I, you know, I don't think that problem is solved by the use of ashes or the absence of ashes. So if a, if a Catholic were to go to Ash Wednesday services because he wanted other Catholics to know he had been to Ash Wednesday services, well, that clearly would vitiate the good of the practice, okay? Um, and uh, But at the same time, you know, I think, uh, you know, the the Catholic who prides himself on his great humility for not showing his other fellow Catholics that he has ashes on his head falls into the same dilemma. Sure, so the, sure. the important thing is not ashes or not ashes as such, but is to have genuine humility, right? I think that's really the issue. Um, in your own case, you told me that the imposition of oil on your forehead was edifying and that the, the the scent reminded you of the sacred action and that that helps you go closer to God. So I got no problem with that. I mean, if you tell me that helps you, then, you know, have at it, man. Yeah. But if you become Catholic, we're going to put ashes on you. <laughs> Jerry, thanks so much for your call. Here is Nathan now, a first-time caller from Findlay, Ohio, listening on the great Holy Family Radio. Uh, Nathan, blessed Lent to you, sir. What's on your mind today? Hey, I had a question for the... Uh it has to do with a question I was asked earlier about purgatory, or you were doing the question uh, to do with purgatory. Yeah. And uh, my question has to do with purgatory. Uh, you under- I understand it's about penance and everything. And uh, how does that? How does purgatory mesh with the resurrection? Uh, like, do people come out of purgatory at the time of the resurrection? Do they stay beyond the resurrection of the body? Uh, any insight yeah, would be helpful. I got, I got the question. Yeah, so, so when Jesus comes back, we have the general judgment of living the dead, and after that, it's, uh, it's two destinations, right, heaven or hell, and there's no purgatory at that point. That ceases to exist. So, you know, what the Catholic Church says about purgatory is that it exists. That's all it says. Yeah. And there's no dogmatic claim made about the length of time that one spends in purgatory or the exact nature of the condition of the souls in purgatory. And so it's perfectly conceivable. I'm not saying this is a fact. I'm just talking about what's conceivable. It's perfectly conceivable that purgatory could be an, an all but instantaneous event, particularly for the souls at the end of time. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when you think about Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, and he sees this theophany, and he's cut to the heart, you know, oh my, I'm a man of unclean lips, and God sends this seraph with a flaming coal to touch his lips and purify him. That, that sense of being sort of cut to the heart by the vision of God. There's a saint in the Catholic tradition named Catherine of Genoa who portrays purgatory that way, that purgatory almost is the kind of, uh, the kind of conviction of soul, painful, I might add, that one experiences upon a vision of the, of the completely pure and all-loving God. And so, I, you know, I can hardly think of something that would Put the fear in God of me. Put the fear of God in me more 
than to see the Son of God come on the clouds of heaven. Oh, yeah. Could wow. that Could that experience itself be purifying to the consciousness? You better believe it, in my sure, judgment. Sure, Nathan, thanks so much for your call. We're going to try to get to all these callers. Here now is um, Lee. Let's go to Lee, a first-time caller from Iowa, listening on the EWTN app. Lee, what's on your mind today? Well, gentlemen, thanks for taking my call. Um, first of all, I want to say I, I started, uh, I discovered... Uh, EWTN radio about two years ago um, when I got Sirius Radio, and um, the first voice I heard on that was Dr. Anders, and I've been trying to listen ever since. Um, Thank you. I, I really enjoy your program. Thank you. So I've got a question on Catholic on churches in general. Um, I was able to visit. It's out of state. I was able to visit the uh, church that my mother was baptized in back in twenty one. And I, I also visited another church nearby, and both the altars were up against the front of the church, so the priest had to have his back to the congregation as he said Mass. It reminded me of, you know, back when I was little um, uh-huh. with the Latin Masses. So I don't know, is there a meaning to that? And then my other question was, I was at a, another Catholic church in Utah once, and I never noticed this before, Every church I've been into that I've noticed, Mary is always on the statue of Mary is always on the left hand side of the altar as you're facing the altar, and Joseph is on the right. And in this particular church, they were opposite. So I was wondering if there's any meaning to those two observations. Thank you. I can speak more to the altar question than the than the than the statue question. With respect to the altars, yeah, the meaning of an altar up against the wall where the priest would have to celebrate with his back to the congregation is that the practice before the council was uh, that the priest would celebrate Mass, what's called ad orientum, or facing the east, with his back to the people. And the, the rationale for that is twofold. One, um, the posture facing the east is a kind of, uh, is a posture of eschatological anticipation, right, that's from the east in the rising sun that Christ will come at the end of days and so there's a kind of uh, there's a kind of longing for the eschaton implied in that posture the other indication is that the priest is there making an offering to God on behalf of the people he's one of the people of God interceding on their behalf with God and the mass is something that we offer to God we don't you know he's not he's not cooking a meal for the benefit of the faithful and so that posture represents that uh, now you know there there are reasons why that has fallen out of favor in in the contemporary Catholic Church and the and the versus populum posture is more common uh, today uh, and in some cases normative but that's the explanation for the traditional posture. Okay, very good and thanks so much uh, for your call. Here now is Roger, a first time caller from Kansas, listening on Divine Mercy Radio. Roger, what's on your mind today, sir? Yes, sir. Good afternoon. I'm I'm. Uh Protestant. Uh-huh. Earlier in your program, uh, one of your gentleman callers, his question was um, Catholicism in in ancient Catholicism and Catholicism under under the Roman Catholic discipline. I'm not sure how to frame this question. My my, my question is 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 John Wesley where where does he stand with God uh, as I mean, he's not Catholic. Yeah, so sure. how does God Thanks. view John John Wesley's discipline as opposed to? Sure. Uh, well, the, I hope very Catholic much. Discipline. I hope very much that John Wesley is in heaven, as I hope for all of the reformers and Protestant leaders. I hope they're all in heaven. 
I, I think that it's possible that many of them are in heaven. Um, and if they are in heaven, it will be because of the truths of the Catholic faith that their lives embodied. So, you know, Wesley in particular was a person who put a very heavy emphasis on holiness, uh, even a doctrine of perfection. And I've, I have read Wesley's book on Christian perfection, read it many years ago, uh, and have a profound respect for the, the works of justice and charity that the Methodist tradition has has so heroically performed over the years, especially in my country, the United States, and their work for human rights and abolition and all of those uh, social concerns that are so close to the heart of the Wesleyan tradition. I, that's that's Catholic stuff there. Like, yeah. we're into that. Now, you know, the Catholic position is that the, the, the Catholic faith contains truths and means of grace that uh, can be, you know, more or less widely distributed outside the boundaries of the Catholic faith. So I'll give you an example. Like, it is the bishops of the Catholic Church that put the canon of the Bible together. But, you know, Methodists use the Catholic Bible. Well, you know, good for them for using yeah. the Catholic Bible, sure, right? You know, sure. um, and, and so those things can become, for Methodists, a means of sanctification and redemption. Do I think that, that Wesley got it all right? No, I think, that, you know, there are some objective difficulties in Wesley's position, and, and there are you know, things that Catholics would take issue with in Methodism, and we think those differences matter. Um, but as to whether they matter in the life of a particular soul, so much they would keep somebody from heaven, that's for God to judge, not me. All right. Roger, thanks so much for your call. A lightning round question from Josie watching us on Facebook. Can you explain why Easter falls on a different day each year? Yeah, because it always has to fall on a Sunday. It falls on the first Sunday after the full moon, after the spring equinox. And and so that, you know, that the, 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 the astronomy is going to vary every year. And then it always has to fall on a Sunday. So there it is. Yeah. That's why. That's how it works. Josie, glad you're watching us on Facebook. Glad we could get that question in. Dr. David Anders, glad we could uh, kick off Lent together, my friend. Thanks, Tom. We do this program Monday through Friday right here on EWTN at 2 p.m. Eastern. Uh, you can check out the podcast, as we mentioned earlier, by going to EWTN.com, click on radio, and then look for the words Podcast Central. On behalf of our fantastic team here, I'm Tom Price, along with Dr. David Anders. Thanks for joining us. See you tomorrow right here on EWTN's Call to Communion. Have a wonderful Ash Wednesday. Don't forget those ashes. See you next time. God bless.